The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and I'm so excited today to have Lily Nichols with me. And Lily is the, uh, a registered dietitian and nutritionist, and she's a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and an author with a passion, and I love passionate <laughs> researchers, for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines, and she's the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. So thank you for being here, Lily. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm so excited to just debunk all the myths about nutrition and just kind of shake up old patterns. So let's get in right in. How did you get into the whole pregnancy and birth industry? Well, I kind of fell into it by accident, actually, (laughs) fairly early in my career as a dietitian. I had the opportunity to work with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program. So that was focused mostly on gestational diabetes, as you can can guess, um, and also working clinically with gestational diabetes. And I really fell in love from it there. I mean, right from the start, it was something where, you know, I, I learned so many interesting statistics about, you know, if blood sugar is not well controlled in pregnancy, a child born to a mother who had the poorly controlled blood sugar may face a higher risk of type 2 diabetes and obesity later in life. Some estimates put that at six times higher than average. Um, Some other estimates put that at 19 times higher um, than would be typical. And so understanding that we could, you know, intervene in pregnancy and empower women to take control of their blood sugar, which for the most part is really mostly food and exercise. Sometimes medication or insulin is also needed. Um, But most of it, it focuses on lifestyle and the fact that we could have a lifestyle intervention at this really fairly short phase. Yeah, um, I was going to say, you're not asking somebody to do something for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And that influences the genetic expression of the baby, the epigenetics. So their, their risk of developing disease and other problems later in life. That was huge to me. That really stuck with me. And I've just been at it ever since. Wow. Okay. So explain what gestational diabetes is exactly. So gestational diabetes is elevated blood sugar in pregnancy that is either first recognized or first develops during pregnancy. So that can be two separate things, right? It could be a blood sugar issue that was going on prior to pregnancy that you've just identified, or it's something that has developed as a result of the physiological changes that your body goes through in pregnancy. But at its, at its core, it is high blood sugar. And why is high blood sugar so dangerous? So there's many possible negative outcomes that can happen from high blood sugar. For one, you know, the baby is getting a a higher than normal supply of energy in the form of sugar. There's not really much of a a protection in place via the placenta um, to protect the baby from high blood sugar. So a mother's blood sugar levels are going to have a direct uh, reflection on the baby's blood sugar levels as well. 
And that actually can program kind of a lot of parts of development to go awry. Um, if you have like really, really high blood sugar, like uncontrolled um, pre-existing diabetes, um, it can be fatal. I mean, it's, it's linked to very serious birth defects that often just result in a, in a spontaneous miscarriage. Um, but for people where the blood sugar is just a little more moderately elevated, but not like to necessarily toxic levels, you're looking at um, differences in how the pancreas develops. And this is part of the reason why we see a higher risk of um, type 2 diabetes sometimes in these children. Um, it can also influence the development of the lungs. Uh, because you're getting a higher supply than usual of sugar, these babies often develop um, to grow larger and not because they're like just exuberantly healthy big babies, but because um, the, the excessive blood sugar ends up getting converted into fat. So they kind of grow disproportionately large and they have an especially large um, like internal fat, like around their organs. And so it's kind of like, in a sense, like obesity that's developing in utero. And I know a lot of people find that kind of controversial, but it's, it's very clear that this is what happens um, in the literature. And by the way, I just want to say, this gets all doom and gloom, that this is when blood sugar levels are uncontrolled. And with a positive diagnosis of gestational diabetes, where blood sugar is well controlled, you don't you don't see these yeah this is adverse just uncontrolled so yeah so I it's like because everybody anyone who gets diagnosed they just get like all this fear 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 um, like well, because, poured on them and they don't get the empowering uplifting yeah, side but of it, things. it's also if you don't understand the gravity of the situation I mean I'm pretty I I understand blood sugar quite well as I've researched the low carb diets but I didn't yeah. know that about pregnancy that there's less of a a barrier, the placenta doesn't filter out that high blood sugar and nope. the baby has no protection, has a, has, does yep. not have a pancreas. I mean, if I spike my blood sugar, my body kind of knows what to do, but a baby's body is like, oh, this is the normal. Right. I guess we better just get ready for all this. Yeah. So it, it can be teratogenic um, early on in pregnancy. That's actually one of the like most problematic times for having elevated blood sugar, which is why screening early or having preconception care where you've identified blood sugar issues ahead of time can be really helpful. So like so pre-type can... 2 diabetes, eh, it's not great to have it, but if you're pregnant, it can be really dangerous and that's why they screen for it. Yes, correct. So gestational diabetes can uh, spontaneously, can start in pregnancy because of hormones yes. or it can just be di diagnosed finally in pregnancy, right? Yes. It's because, you know, a lot of people don't have routine medical care outside of pregnancy and pregnancy is when you're you know seeing a clinician getting tests um and moreover the blood sugar thresholds are more stringent in pregnancy than they are outside of pregnancy right so you know if somebody has like pre-diabetes or just sort of like a mild insulin resistance sometimes that will present itself in pregnancy as if it's gestational diabetes but it was something that was going on uh, previously. And well, and, so we're, yeah. And they say that I've heard that gestational diabetes can just come while you're pregnant and then go away right after. But if it's been a pre existing condition that just got diagnosed in pregnancy, then it's not necessarily going to go away after the pregnancy. Right. And in quite a few women, blood sugar levels will, will normalize early postpartum, but we know there, there's a high chance of, they call it conversion into type 2 diabetes uh, later in life. So in the like five to 10 years after your baby is born, that can be anywhere from like 30 to 70% of people with GD will end up 
um, converting to type 2 diabetes, which again points to that this probably wasn't just a spontaneous pregnancy thing. Pregnancy is really like a metabolic stress test on your body. Like you are, you know, you carrying go. more weight. You know, I mean, you know, you've had yep. babies, I've had babies. It's like, it's tiring. Your body is doing a lot. If anything um, was, was working at half speed, you definitely feel it in pregnancy. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So the it, joints, it, it's the like, brain fog, the sugar, the, yep. So yeah, it's an additional stressor on, on your pancreas for sure. And sometimes that can, yeah, something you want to follow up, um, long-term, even if it's for most people, not like a, an immediate acute concern in the early postpartum period. It is something where you want to be like, okay, I learned during my pregnancy that I would have better blood sugar control when I ate XYZ foods versus ABC foods. So long-term you should probably eat XYZ foods because you learned that those were good for your blood sugar and metabolism. Yeah. So what do you think is the best nutritional, uh, best approach to prenatal nutrition? And how does that differ from what we're actually being taught? mainstream. Yeah. So to sort of seg away from gestational diabetes a little bit, um, as you mentioned, because I feel like I know, (laughs) I feel like some of the foods they recommend us eat would actually exacerbate a pre-existing blood sugar problem. So that's why I'm kind of like poking at you. Like what's what's going on? (laughs) Yes, that is, that is precisely the case. And, and that's actually the what got me to write my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, is that I was being a good dietitian and I was giving my clients the meal plans that the guidelines said that I should provide uh, where you eat a minimum of 175 grams of carbohydrates per day <gasps> and their blood sugar was not getting better and would often get worse. Now, that's the minimum in the I US. Know, I was going to say that's, that's the starting minimum. point. That's really, really That's high. high. For somebody who has, so another way to describe gestational diabetes is carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy. So in other words, your body cannot tolerate large amounts of carbohydrates without experiencing elevated blood sugar. So it's a little bit silly to think that we need to provide a high carbohydrate diet when my, what in my opinion is a high carbohydrate diet. Um, to somebody who's insulin resistant, who's carbohydrate intolerant. It doesn't make sense and it doesn't work in clinical practice. So um, my work clinically in developing a lower carbohydrate approach um, and more focused on nutrient dense foods is really what paved the way for um, putting that out into a book format. I was really tired of getting um, client referrals from people who had gone to their gestational diabetes nutrition class and were told essentially the opposite of what was going to help their blood sugar. And it's really frustrating because they'd be like, I'm following the meal plan. I've been doing it for four days and my blood sugar is worse than it was before I implemented all this stuff. And there's so many carbs and I can't possibly eat them all. I'm like stuffed say, from the you carbs. Say 175 is a minimum. A high carb day for me just normally is like 150. That's a super high carb day. Like right. two crispy treat cream donuts for breakfast kind of day. <laughs> like I don't understand because I'm not a big soda drinker, but I don't understand how you can like put more than 200 carbs in your body. Yeah. It's kind of hard without feeling, actually I do because I did for my first pregnancy and gained about 75 pounds (laughs) because I was following the, the recommend recommended diet and the food provided by WIC. And that's the sad reality is that because the guidelines are what they are, the programs like WIC who are doing 
really important work mm -hmm. providing food for mothers that need it are not necessarily providing the foods that would be the best for them. It was yeah. really challenging when we had um, WIC clients because we'd have to actually call WIC and see if they could make arrangements to provide other foods because some of the foods that they would provide like juice and cereal are they're essentially refined carbohydrates it's all, it's all sugar and so it'd spike their blood sugar like crazy so sometimes we'd try to call the wick office and see if they could make arrangements to provide them with additional other foods um, that were not super high carb <laughs> high sugar and see if we could work around it and you know they're kind of in a bind too because that's yeah, a, what their program, program yeah it's like a you said regulated program food is better than no food but yes. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't understand why are so many, if the science shows refined carbohydrates bike blood sugar, and we have somebody who is already at a blood sugar problem, why are dietitians not make, I don't want to make fun of anyone or pick on anyone, but why are they still recommending this? It makes no sense to me. Well, so the WIC program is a bit of a separate apple than the gestational diabetes um, guidelines. As I said, like they're just, following the government nutrition stuff. And really they're just trying to provide it as cheap as possible, which mm -hmm. is That's a lot true. of carbohydrates, but they're not necessarily geared towards providing food for gestational diabetes. They really should have a different arm that's available where they just take out some of the super high carb stuff, but that would be more costly to WIC. Mm -hmm. um, as far as why dietitians or some dietitians are still just following the guidelines, I mean, it's really hard to break out of what you've been trained to do. And there's a lot of um, fearful messaging around going against any guidelines and specifically going low carb. Uh, the, I, you know, I know as a certified diabetes educator, I did this whole extensive additional training on diabetes. And I can tell you from the, the textbook that you go through to prepare for that exam, um, the nutrition information on there is just straight up wrong. I mean, it's, it's wrong. I mean, they're, they're telling you that you need to eat, you know, 40% plus of your calories from carbohydrates per day um, at minimum, even though those are the things that spike your blood sugar. They'll, they're telling you to um, avoid fat because uh, diabetics are at a higher risk of heart disease. So you have to avoid fat because fat, of course, leads to heart disease not seeing the irony in that if you have elevated blood sugar, you're having right. cardiovascular issues. They tell you that protein doesn't have, um, you know, doesn't ameliorate uh, blood sugar issues, which is if you work with people with diabetes and you follow their blood sugar logs, it's very, very obvious that the main fuel source that spikes blood sugar is carbohydrates. And it's very clear when people reduce the carbohydrates from their diet, not necessarily eliminate just instead of having an additional serving of bread or potatoes or pasta or whatever at a meal, have an additional serving of vegetables or a slightly larger portion of protein at your meal or some nuts on the side or some cheese or some avocado, their blood sugar readings are far better. I mean, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. I'll put it <laughs> that way. Um, but there is, there's a lot of uh, concern in pregnancy over people going low carb and having ketones in their body. And unfortunately, the conventional training for diabetes educators like myself is that any ketones 
that's, that's a bad thing. They equate ketones with diabetic ketoacidosis, which is not the case. Um, and additionally, there is some false information going around about ketones related to pregnancy, suggesting that it would harm infant brain development. Um, unfortunately, that advice actually uh, ignores the physiological reality of yeah. pregnancy, which is that most women will just naturally go in and out of ketosis over the course of pregnancy. And it's and you funny. have to wonder, you have to wonder like this, this, uh, I know they say that the nausea and the morning sickness, the beginning of pregnancy is to help a woman stay away from dangerous foods that, you know, to harm the fetus in this. But what it does, I, I'm not so sure. I don't know my own personal thing that doesn't really make sense to me, but the purpose it does serve is put the woman into ketosis. So she's basically lowering her blood sugar, going into a state of fasting, which is amazing for cellular health. Like it clears out your body and it just, it's detoxifying. And so, so, cause I was researching, I was trying to figure out, well, the keto diet being all the, the rage it is now, is the keto diet safe in pregnancy? And disclaimer, I am a doctor, <laughs> but, but I just wanted to know, like, what are the effects of ketones on the baby? And what they say is actually that it's important. Uh, the mom is, what is it? You could correct me. She's more insulin resistant at the end of her pregnancy, but very insulin sensitive at the beginning of her pregnancy. And that's like yes, what her body follows. So it would stand to reason that nature wants the baby to be insulin sensitive, which means not a lot of sugar. <laughs> you know, maybe. Yes. And then also they said that babies are in a natural state, a mild state of ketosis all the time because breast milk um, keeps them there and it's helpful for brain development. And I was like, I felt like okay, I had you've found either it. read chapter 11 of Real Food for Gestational Diabetes or you listened to my talk at Low Carb Denver from 2019. Huh? Oh, I don't know. Okay. I, it was a blog about, <laughs> oh my goodness, maybe I did hear your talk, but I know I read this article. Really? Is that true? But I feel like I found the secret information that like if anybody found out I knew they would like put me in the town square and mock me. Well, it's pretty hard to find the information. I can tell you it took me a long time to dig up some of the information on it. Although there have been some more studies that came out since like 2015, 2016 on the topic, but um, you're exactly right. So early pregnancy, your body is more insulin sensitive um, and oftentimes blood sugar dips down. And actually over the course of pregnancy, blood sugar levels average about 20% lower than outside of pregnancy. Your body's really obsessed with trying to keep blood sugar as low as possible. So the fact that we're revving it up with even more sugar is quite amazing. It's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and then towards the end of pregnancy, your body becomes more insulin resistant and you produce higher amounts of insulin in addition. So in order to combat that insulin resistance, if everything goes as planned and there's no gestational diabetes or prediabetes pathology in place, your insulin resistance goes up, but your insulin production goes up to match it. And you're often producing double or sometimes triple the quantity of insulin toward the end of pregnancy compared to the beginning of pregnancy. Really? Um, and really, it's a, it's a mechanism in place to send as many nutrients to baby as possible. Uh, but in addition to that, your body more readily goes into a state of nutritional ketosis over the course of pregnancy as well. So in late pregnancy, if you go, you know, what would normally be like a 12 hour fast overnight, say you go to sleep at nine and you wake up and have breakfast at nine, 
you will have ketones in your urine in the morning and you'll probably have a mild level of ketones, non-harmful, but a mild level of ketones in your blood as well. This is normal. Your body just readily switches into fat burning mode in pregnancy. Well, because your body can't afford to crash while you're pregnant. No, the baby needs a consistent supply well, of nutrition. Yeah, and explain it, it, what ketones are and why yeah, why why they even matter. So, ketones are a byproduct of fat metabolism. When you break down fat as a source of fuel, you produce ketones as a result. And ketones are also a fuel that your body can use even though uh, some sources tell us that they're problematic. They are problematic in certain instances of somebody who has pre-existing diabetes that requires insulin shots, like somebody with type 1 diabetes or or very advanced type 2 diabetes that requires a lot of insulin, and they don't take enough insulin. And so you're in a state where you can't utilize the sugar in your bloodstream whatsoever, so you're breaking down your body's fat stores for energy. And so you'll be in this dangerous state where you have extremely elevated... Yeah, extremely elevated blood sugar combined with extremely elevated ketone levels, and your blood becomes very acidic. That's bad. That's bad for everybody. That's especially bad during pregnancy. It's very clearly teratogenic. But the state that I described before, where maybe you go overnight and you don't have a snack in the middle of the night and wake up (laughs) and have breakfast, um, before you have breakfast, you're probably in a fat-burning mode, and that's okay. And in addition, if you eat um, a relatively low carb diet. It doesn't even have to necessarily be keto or anything. You don't need to go all the way down to like 20 grams of carbs a day. Even somebody eating 150 grams of carbs a day in pregnancy will often still go in and out of nutritional ketosis. It just happens. And it actually supplies the fetal brain with important energy and cerebral lipids for growth. They estimate that 30% of fetal brain energy requirements are met by ketones. So it's not just glucose Whoa. that grows a baby. Yeah, because I've heard your brain has to have sugar, but you're saying 30% of a baby's brain growth requires ketones. So that And when you look sense. at, there was a really interesting study in 2016 that looked at um, ketone levels in uh, mother and fetus and baby after delivery. Um, and the mother's placenta. They found elevated ketone levels across all of them, by the way, babies remain in ketosis for at least the first month of life. They're actually highest in the first like two, three days of life before like when you're in the colostrum milk phase. Before I was going to say, make sure it makes, because otherwise the baby and babies are ravenous. My babies were ravenous, but yeah. But if they're in ketosis, then they're basically using some of that fat stores from... That's exactly right. And that's, that's why all, babies lose weight yeah. and it's not a big deal, yep. right? <gasps> it's not a big deal. That's why they lose 7 to 10% of their body weight. They're simply using their fat stores for energy. Um, well, they're still taking in some colostrum, right? But, yeah, but uh, waiting yeah, for your milk totally supply normal. to kick in. So this is all mm-hmm. completely natural. It's all totally natural. And oh that, that's gosh. what I try to point out is like, this is the physiological reality. We don't have to try to stuff people full of carbs to try to avoid ketosis when it's literally just this mm-hmm. physiologically happens in all mammals, all mammals. Yeah. We just get super freaked out over data on diabetic ketoacidosis. And then people try to extrapolate that for nutritional ketosis and pregnancy. Yeah, and it's different. not the same thing. Well, I want to get back on a soapbox about the baby losing weight right after birth. Cause I have big babies. You know what? Now listening to you, I probably was on that level of the glucose. 
of being type two probably. And I passed the glucose tolerance test, but what that 20 weeks or something, but by the end of pregnancy, I could have been totally, anyway, I digress. So I I have big babies, nine, nine and a half pound babies, and I'm not a big person. (laughs) Anyway, my first baby, he was losing weight and I was struggling with my milk supply and he lost over a pound and they actually threatened uh, DCFS. Now that is a lot of weight. My milk had, did have problems, but, but then my next baby was even bigger. First baby was nine pounds. Second baby was nine and a half pounds. He also lost that weight and the doctors were crazy. And then, I mean, crazy upset with me. Like I did something wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. Third baby, nine pounds again. And by then my midwife is like, so you seem to have an interesting pattern that your babies lose about a pound after they're born. And then they stay teeny weeny itsy bitsy until eight or nine months. And then they just skyrocket. She goes, let's see what happens with this baby. Don't stress about it. Just nurse normally. And she did the same thing. So by the time I had my fourth baby, I was like, oh, you're going to lose a pound. You're going to get smaller. That's so cute. (laughs) You know? And like, they're fine. They're healthy. But I just, I just get so upset when, when they say like in the hospital, big babies have blood sugar problems. So you have to give them formula or you have to give them a shot of glucose. What are they doing? Why are they doing that? I mean, well, there can be in defense. So in your defense first, like there's are absolutely cases of healthy, big babies that have no problems. Actually, I myself was a big baby. I was nine <laughs> pounds. My mom, as far as I know, didn't have gestational diabetes. Um, and I have no blood sugar, metabolic weight issues over my whole life. Right. So I, th- I don't think it was a gestational diabetes caused big baby situation there. Mm-hmm. They absolutely happen, right? Our, our, our um, determination of what's normal or not is really just looking at a bell curve and deciding what's average and saying if you fall outside of these percentage points, then, you know. Ah. Well, what's average um, in the Western society? Anyway. Right. <laughs> so, but in to go back to the gestational diabetes thing, because I don't want to um, discount that there's ever a problem with big babies sometimes. Um, if it's in the case of a, of a baby that's born to a mom that had poorly controlled blood sugar, the, the reason they're concerned about giving um, sugar water or formula at birth is that their blood, baby's blood sugar levels can drop low. And so think about the physiology of what happens. So this baby has been essentially like marinated in utero in a high sugar environment. Mm. Once they're at a certain stage of development that their pancreas produces insulin, that baby in utero is producing insulin in order to combat the elevated blood sugar. So if they're expecting a consistent high supply of sugar, they're pretty much always putting out a a consistent high supply of insulin as well. They don't end up fat adapted like a baby to a mother who doesn't have elevated blood sugar, who's dipping in and out of ketosis as you naturally would do in pregnancy. So they're born, you cut the umbilical cord, that consistent supply of sugar stops, but their consistent supply of insulin. Oh my gosh, that makes so much more sense. So they go hypoglycemic um, and that can be life-threatening. I mean, it it can be a problem. It it absolutely can be a problem for um, brain development. It can result in a hypoxic situation. And so it it does become a medical emergency in certain instances where they do want to intervene with food, you know, um, whether you want to call sugar water food, they do want to correct for um, the low blood sugar. So there are some people who will um, either provide formula, there's kind of a trend of 
um, women with gestational diabetes pumping colostrum toward the end of their pregnancy to have that on hand in the case that there's a low blood sugar situation. Um, but it, it can happen where it's a problem. Um, but outside of that situation, yes, Babies well, that makes a, little a bit of lot the, of sense at, when then. they're born in the first so couple of days. Maybe instead of just assuming that all big babies are born to moms with poorly controlled sh- sugars, they could ask the mom. I don't, I, not that all moms know. You could ask the that. mom or you could test but, the blood like sugar. Like for level. me, especially, I could go in and just say, I have big babies. My sugars have been great. Please don't worry about my baby or something like that. I could try. Maybe. I don't know if they would. <laughs> I mean, I, um, my, my first also, I wouldn't say he was big. He was a little bit over eight pounds, but, um, he also, you know, he lost about 10% of his body weight, which is still within normal, but they were so nervous, you know, it was like this two weeks of, and I hear this from so many moms where they're, you're just put through the ringer of stress about your baby's losing too much weight. Your milk is not enough. And what does that do? That adds yeah, to it, your anxiety, yeah, which it, reduces it your milk supply. So big. Yep. But <laughs> but we're talking actually about two separate issues. The weight loss, like my babies didn't drop a pound in a day. It was over right. the next week or two, right? Right. So you're talking about the the, the uh, acute danger of right after the baby's born of the blood sugar dropping. Yes, that's that's a and separate thing. Yeah, it's a separate thing than the weight loss. So they so I had them together, but they are actually separate issues. Yeah, yeah, I think they are separate issues. They're just related. I wanted to yeah. call out the GD um, thing because I do think it's important people. And I don't think anybody aware. told me the wrong information. I just think I conflated it because they were saying, you have big babies. Oh my gosh, the baby's losing weight. And I didn't understand we were talking about two separate things yep. and they didn't know. Well, they didn't I think, think also to. part of it is like when you have a bigger baby, they end up at a higher percentage point on the growth curve to start with. So That's then they're true. like, they're dropping off the growth curve. It's like yeah, a nine pound baby losing a, a pound is a way different than a seven pound baby losing a exactly. pound. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, my kids had stores. They were ready to hit the ground running with whatever they had on their body. <laughs> yep. And then they stayed little. They say you your baby should double its birth weight by what is it six weeks or something? I can't remember. I can't remember those either. <laughs> but my babies were always like three or four months later, we're finally doubling the birth weight. So yeah, yeah. My babies are early pounds. movers. So yeah. they, they, they drop off in their growth curve at between three and six months. Cause they're just like moving so much. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know that the second time around, so you're not concerned, but I think growth charts make probably every new mom just a little bit on edge, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Because we're trying to be a good mom. So if our kid's achieving well on the growth chart, it somehow <laughs> reflects on our motherhood. Yep. So <laughs> Not <feels>. really. <laughs> so what would you recommend? Like specifically, we've talked about all of the wrong things we're doing. What would you recommend specifically for nutrition and pregnancy? So I, you know, I'm a big advocate of people consuming real food, hence the names of my book. So nutrient dense foods that have not been processed away to take away from their nutritional value. Um, A lot of people would think of, you know, whole grains versus refined grains. And yes, that's true to a point, but it also extrapolates into other types of food like dairy products. As we were talking about, you're a whole milk person, right? Dairy comes from cows with fat in it. It's only humans that go in and try to take the fat out because we decided it's bad. Eggs come with yolks. 
for a reason. There's a lot of really important nutrients in the egg yolk that you lose if you're only eating the egg white. Chicken and other animals, they have skin, they have bones, they have organs. Like prior to industrialized food, we ate nose to tail. You ate all the parts. You didn't throw off the nose skin because tail. it was high fat. Um, you, you ate all the parts of the animal and it turns out there's important nutrients yeah. in some of those off cuts and tough cuts of meat and the organ meats. And so, you know, I encourage people to eat, of course, like unprocessed foods, but to look beyond unprocessed foods as just being fruits and vegetables and whole grains, right? Like egg whites, in my opinion, are a processed food. You've taken out a very valuable source of nutrients. So think, starting to think about your food and it's like totality mm-hmm. and consuming um, all the pieces. So you don't have uh, any angst against one certain food group. You just want it to be real. Yes. Uh, uh, but I would also say that, you know, to an extent, right, um, grains, for example, if you're looking at, like, which nutrient deficiencies are most common in pregnancy, and where do we find those nutrients in real food, and then also looking at the blood sugar issue, right, how common it is to have elevated blood sugar in pregnancy, and what are the foods that raise your blood sugar, what are the, what are the foods that don't raise your blood sugar? I'm not as big of a proponent of pushing like a super high intake of grains, for example, even if they're whole, because they're not providing you with vitamin B12. They're not providing you with very much choline. They're not providing you with very much iron or zinc or vitamin C or a lot of these nutrients that you need more of over the course of pregnancy where other foods could instead take their place and give you a more nutritionally balanced diet. So Mm -hmm. I'm not anti-grains. I'm just not like, super um eat as many grains as you want you know as long as you're eating whole foods you're fine i think we do have to have some consideration on the proportions of things that we're consuming well the food pyramid the emphasis is on grains at the bottom so you're saying right maybe that's off balance a little bit i yeah i definitely would not put grains at the bottom i'd put grains and starches um like above the fruits and vegetables i'd have your Fruits, vegetables, meat, poultry, eggs, um, toward the bottom, legumes mm-hmm. maybe, and then have your, you know, uh, nuts and seeds, um, whatever else above it. I'm like making this up as I go. So I'm trying to think dairy products. Yeah. I have grains above all of those foods that I've just mentioned. And then at the very top, added sugar. So what do you uh, think about, um, uh, sorry, I've, I don't know. I don't remember how to say it, but where somebody comes from kind of determines how they process certain foods. Like I am European out based and I process dairy really great, but I do struggle with rice and grains and somebody from like the Asian, the the Asian region, uh, they would struggle with milk, but be fine with rice and grains. And so what do you think? Is that Am I just making oh, this I th- up? Oh, I think that's absolutely worth considering, sort of like your ancestral roots. Yeah, they're ancestral. Yeah, that's very yeah. like that's very on par with uh, you know Weston Price and his research and those kinds of principles. Where you know, and, and for people who don't know, he was a dentist in the early 1900s who traveled around the world and cataloged people's traditional diets and noted that when people went off of their traditional diet, there was um, a greater incidence of disease 
And to the point about pregnancy nutrition, there was also a higher incidence of problems with their offspring as well. So higher incidence of tuberculosis and, um, you know, deformities, uh, crooked teeth. Um, we don't even think about crooked teeth as being a problem these days, right? Because it's like, well, you just fix it with orthodontia. Um, but back in those times, before you had all those corrective dentistry practices, I mean, you had crooked teeth. It was pretty hard to eat well, you know? Yeah, that's um, true. So that's essentially a, a sign of, you know, a problem with bone development. And he found that that could be corrected for when people went back on their traditional diet the next in the next generation, even if they were born with crooked teeth, they could have children who had straight teeth. So it's pretty pretty interesting research. But what I want to point out is that the diet that somebody consumed, you know, in the Arctic compared to the diet that somebody consumed on a tropical island was completely different. There was some overlap. They always were eating unprocessed foods. They were always eating quote nose to tail, so using all parts of the animal. Um, there were not any vegan. Uh, traditionally living vegan cultures that he came across. There was always some source of animal foods provided and they were eating local in season, like processed close great. to home. Um, <laughs> not a bunch of, not added sugar because that didn't exist for them until it was introduced by colonization. And then you'd start to see these, you know, detrimental effects on the health. So absolutely, I think there is something to, um, you know, going with your ancestral roots. Yeah. And if you are from a part of the world that eats, uh, you know, a higher amount of fish and seafood, but doesn't include dairy products, for example, you can, you can absolutely go with that. Actually, a lot of the nutrients that you would be getting in dairy, you can get from fish and seafood, particularly if you're um, making like broth with the bones yeah. or you're cooking the fish to the degree that the bones break down. I mean, that's actually one of your greatest sources of calcium outside of dairy products would be fish where you're consuming the bones somehow, some way. There's a lot of wow. bioavailable calcium there. Um, in addition, you get like a lot of iodine from both of those foods, yeah. a lot of B vitamins from both of those foods. There's kind of a lot of crossover. So as long as it's sort of traditionally based... Um, you know, there's a lot of wisdom to what these cultures were doing. And I think it's certainly so we, okay to go back on that. As Americans, as a mixing pot, we have all of the countries mixed into America. We're Absolutely. all displaced from our ancestral grounds, except for the Native Americans. <laughs> like we're all displaced. So... And yeah. even they are displaced. They so. are too. I was going to say, they are too. <laughs> They're not allowed yeah. to really practice the way that their bodies are supposed to go to do either. Yeah. So we're all kind of messed up here in this. <laughs> and then you add all the abundance of sugar and the abundance of food just really. And no yeah. wonder everybody's fighting over whether we should be vegan or paleo or, or uh, keto. And it really just depends on your own body. I, yeah, I would agree with that. Yes. That's fascinating. So what about postpartum? How does nutrition affect uh, a mom's ability to recover? So I'm, I'm a big advocate for postpartum recovery and nutrient repletion. Um, I don't know if you can speak to this from your pregnancies, but you know when you're not getting adequately nourished postpartum. I mean, you feel depleted. Pregnancy pulls a lot out of your nutrient stores. Oh, and then on hey, top of that, you have Can birth I ask you about a myth? So sure. the, well, is it a myth when they say that it doesn't matter what you eat, your baby will get whatever it needs and it will pull out from you? To a certain extent, that is true. 
but it depends on your nutrient status going into pregnancy. Right. Your body just can't make up stuff. Your body, your baby can't steal stuff that doesn't exist. Exactly. So if you go into pregnancy, here's a good example where we have a lot of research on it. If you go into pregnancy, uh, vitamin B12 deficient, which would happen if somebody was following a vegan diet and had not been supplementing because that is a nutrient that's only found in animal foods, your baby will be born vitamin B12 deficient and your breast milk will be vitamin B12 deficient. These sound like strong, crazy statements. I have like studies to back up all three of those statements. <laughs> Another good example is iron. Yeah. Yeah. You, you go in iron deficient, you're going to be anemic in pregnancy. Your baby will be born with low iron stores. You will also be anemic postpartum. So postpartum, iron isn't a nutrient. No, it's not. Yeah. yeah, it's not a nutrient, but it's. Well, uh, no, iron's a nutrient. It's not one that transfers super high amounts into breastfeeding. So I can't further extrapolate that into if you're anemic, you're your milk will be um, iron deficient. It really mm. doesn't doesn't make much of a difference either way. Breast milk is pretty low in iron, but for all the other periods for pregnancy and, and postpartum and your baby's um, iron stores, that absolutely plays a role. So we can't make it up out of thin air, but if you've generally been pr eating pretty well um, going into pregnancy and you ate pretty well during pregnancy, I mean... And it, like small little deficits, your body can pull from its stores for the baby. There's obviously like a lot of stopgap measures in place to try to make sure that everything goes off without a hitch. Um, but it's kind of like I equate it to, uh, you know, a gardener who's growing tomatoes. You can have, you know, one tomato plant that you put a lot of care into and you grow it in really rich soil. You add compost to it. You have it in an optimal amount of sunlight you make sure you water it. Then you have the other tomato plant that you're like, well, I just planted you in whatever dirt and I like kind of forget to water you and I don't offer any compost or manure or source of additional nutrients. And you're going to see the difference in the production of tomatoes, how tasty the tomato are, tomatoes are, how green the leaves are, mm -hmm. how big the plants grow. I mean, it's still a tomato plant at the end of the day, um, but one is nutrient deficient and one is not one is healthy and one is not, you know, so so, make sure that you nourish your tomatoes, <laughs> nourish those tomatoes. Yeah. I mean, it's just about, in my opinion, it's like stacking the deck in your favor. And it's, it's not just about baby. It's about you feeling well over the course of the pregnancy and about you feeling well postpartum as well. Yeah. So your nutrition, your nutrition does play a role in recovery and postpartum it it absolutely does. So there's, I mean, there's there's so many things going on with postpartum recovery. I have like a whole uh, ninety minute webinar focusing on nutrient repletion postpartum. But in a nutshell, you know, you are repleting the nutrient stores from pregnancy. So you've spent nine months giving, 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 giving. You have given birth, and birth is an event, right? There's mm -hmm. it's either you know a marathon of physical exertion, or maybe that plus an emergency C-section, or maybe even if it's a scheduled C-section, I mean, a C-section is a major abdominal surgery. So you're either talking like crazy physical feet, like recovering from a marathon or recovering from major surgery. I mean, there's a huge amount of recovery involved your, in either of those. Pick your fun. Yeah. 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 You know, that takes time on, on its own. Your body goes through huge hormonal shifts to um, you know, 
flush the hormones of pregnancy to um, clear, to um, start to heal the, the wound that was left by the placenta, which many midwives describe as being the size of a dinner plate. You now switch into the hormones of lactation, whether or not you plan to breastfeed for a long time. I mean, there's still that hormonal shift. Your thyroid completely changes postpartum as well. It has undergone a ton of changes to account for pregnancy. And now it's trying to sort of figure out its own, you know, new state postpartum. And that takes some time. Uh, And if you're breastfeeding long term, you're going to have a continual, you know, nutrient like loss in a way, transfer, a nutrient transfer would be a nice way (laughs) to put it, to baby. And so that also can deplete you um, over time. And then not to mention, you know, the anemia that's really common in pregnancy that's often carried over postpartum. You do have postpartum bleeding. There is a lot of blood loss in delivery. There's research showing that for people who have, you know, a significant amount of blood loss or even a postpartum hemorrhage, they're much more likely. It's like 75 times more likely to be anemic. Um, and we don't really screen for anemia postpartum mm-hmm. very often. We, we don't should. screen for postpartum thyroid issues. I mean, there's a lot of things that can be potentially nutrition related or, you know, mediated by nutritional status that we're not really shining the light on much. <laughs> So basically, it's amazing any of us survive any of this. <laughs> but you're, but what you're saying is that nutritional, good nutrition can really help um, mediate a lot of these issues. Yeah, it can make it just easier and more enjoyable. You know, I mean, you think- I mean, I have a one-year-old, so I'm still in the midst of it. You know, it's like not getting sleep for however long. Well, because um, I have a nine-year-old, I'm still postpartum. <laughs> postpartum is forever, right? It's forever. Um, yeah, but you can have a, a an easier postpartum mm-hmm. experience by at least having the food nourishment part. I believe it. And I believe it just because I had no nutrition education with my first two and I had a lot of nutrition. And in fact, I still joke with the midwife of my fourth baby that she was so irritating because she kept wanting to look at my food journal. And she kept telling me to keep a food journal. And then she'd look at it and tell me all the things I was doing wrong and right. And I just didn't want to hear anything about it. But lo and behold, I had a better recovery. Weird. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. Number four. Yeah. Yeah. So really Older and wiser, maybe. Yeah. So what are some of the things that a mom can do in, in preparation? So before the baby's here to stock, we all hear about freezer meals, but with a nutrition mindset, what, what are some of the things she can do to to make this transition easier on herself? Well, other than, you know, feeding yourself as well as your body and time will allow over the course of pregnancy, I'm a big fan of of postpartum meal prep. Um, I actually have a whole big blog post on on real food postpartum recovery meals. I link out to 50 plus recipes if you want to provide a link to this on the show notes. But uh, I'm big on on having food on hand, either you prepare the food and have it in the freezer ready to go, or you have a family member come and help prepare food for you. You have a meal delivery service, a postpartum doula who helps you with food prep, a loving spouse, maybe who's a good cook who will who'll provide food for you. You could um, pick out recipes ahead of time that you know that you like, that you can, you know, give to people. You can have a uh, meal train set up. I know I had that 
um, both times with people in my community. And that was so helpful. You know, every other day, somebody would come with dinner to drop off. And yeah. usually there was enough for, for lunch the next day. And that you didn't have to worry about that one extra thing of cooking, yeah. which is it's surprisingly overwhelming for like your brain to even like oh yeah have to think about like yeah what to eat well, when you have like, like a scheduling baby showers and, is is enough like to think about scheduling showers eat. is like <laughs> it's like a whole day or two or three days sometimes feet to fit in a five minute shower you know you just don't have time or energy to do yeah. the food thing and so any pre preparation you can do on that is is huge and that's going to look different for everyone but. For me, I'm, I'm not much of like a stringent meal planner. So what I would do um, in my most recent pregnancy is I just made double batches of whatever meal I knew would freeze well. So something like chili um, or like a casserole or um, soup. Um, I'm big on bone broth as well. It's really helpful for healing. I would just make a double batch and then freeze half of it. So then by the time I started doing that, maybe around halfway through the pregnancy. So by the time I was done with pregnancy, I would do try to do one thing a week that I could put away in the freezer. That was my goal. Mm -hmm. And so I would do one double batch meal. And so by the end of it, I had, I think about 20 um, meals set aside in, in the freezer. And then I did have some extra help on hand um, early postpartum and a couple friends put together a meal train. So I had some delivered meals which meant that some of the freezer meals I pulled out at like three months postpartum. Yeah. They're still good. Nice. It's still helpful. Life is still overwhelming when you're three yeah. months in versus three weeks in. And so it, it, any, any meal prep, you will be so happy that you <laughs> did ahead of time. I had another question. I should have asked this uh, before, but it works now because I remember having cravings in postpartum. What are cravings, especially the cravings where you want to eat like driveway? <laughs> eat driveway. Yeah. Like, like I had, yeah, I had a friend confide in me. She's like, all I need to do is lick the sidewalk. Like I just, I look at that sidewalk and I just want to suck on it like a popsicle. Oh, fascinating. So there's a lot of, they call that pika craving uh -huh. for non-food items. And there's a lot of theories on that. And probably one of the most, um, you know, theories that holds weight is uh, it can be a sign of mineral deficiencies, especially if you're craving eating like dirt or rocks or ice. Um, that can often be a sign that you want to check for anemia, for example. Mm. Um, but I would also probably take it a step further and think about, you know, your electrolytes or trace minerals. So maybe if you can fit in some additional sources of trace minerals, so like your bone broth gives you a lot of trace minerals because you're pulling them from the bones. Mm -hmm. um, seaweed and sea vegetables would give you a lot of trace minerals. Um, nuts and seeds, fruits and vegetables. Those would be the kinds of things that I would think about. Maybe you try incorporating some more of those and see how it goes. Yeah. So um, are cravings yeah. like your body guiding you as to what you're deficient in naturally or are they just weird, weird phenomenon? In some cases, they can be um, like the ones that I mentioned. And I mean, as you've probably experienced in pregnancy, there's different times where you'd be like, oh, I just have to have XYZ food. Pickles. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, pickles, right? And that's actually probably a sign your body needs more salt, which it turns out you do need more salt in pregnancy because you have a lot more fluids on board. So you wow. need the electrolytes yeah. to go with it, right? So some of those I'm, I'm all for um, just going with it. 
Um, the pika, definitely like non-food items, is probably not a good idea to eat cement or asphalt, right? So look into the mineral deficiency potential on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, if the cravings are just for like junk food sugar items, I mean, that one I think might need a little more um, introspection because yeah. a lot of processed foods, so sugar itself, as well as a lot of the flavor combinations that food companies create, they're literally engineered to be addictive. I mean, they trigger a dopamine surge in your brain. So pregnant or not, those foods are addictive. The more you eat them, the more you'll want to keep eating them. And so when it comes to some of those things, while I don't think it's a big deal to occasionally indulge, I think it is helpful to kind of try to check in with yourself and be like, is this really a craving that I need Mm -hmm. something? I mean, it could be you're not eating enough food at meals or snacks and you're having a blood sugar low. So you're having a physiologic like trigger to want to eat something. And so maybe that's a, hmm, maybe I should eat a larger lunch or maybe I should try to get a little more protein in this lunch so I have more staying power, see how it goes. Or maybe, you know, I know I had a craving for like sour gummy worms (laughs) Um, this is like first trimester when, you know, sour, sweet, salty can be helpful with the nausea. And I remember looking at the package of them and I'm like, I just, I don't really want these, but I want these. And I'm looking at the ingredients. I was like, I just, I just can't do it. And so I found the, um, the stand-in that I could use for sour gummy worms was, um, tart dried cherries. So they're like, sweet and sour yeah it's like and it's still like high sugar but at least it's like a cherry and not like (laughs) red dye number 40 which I didn't really think was the great idea to consume much of I knew if I bought the package I'd eat the end up eating the whole thing so I was like let me try this dried fruit and see if it fits the bill and that that was enough to you know get me over that hump that was something that was helpful something that was a little bit sour a little bit sweet and my body was telling me that, but I, my brain was like sour gummy worms, but my body was really happy to have the tart cherries instead. So sometimes there's some room for thinking about maybe something that could be um, a, a healthier stand-in for it. It might not necessarily, I don't think my body had a d- deficiency in sour gummy worms. I think <laughs> sour was really helpful at quenching the nausea. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very, very cool. Wow. Um, honestly, I I have learned so much. I feel like I have learned a lot about nutrition and pregnancy since even having my babies, but man, oh man. Okay. So your book is called Real Food for Pregnancy. And then you have another book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. They can find right. that on Amazon or mm-hmm. a bookseller, right? And yep. how else can they reach you? Uh, you can find me on my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. Uh, for people who are interested in the um, Real Food for Pregnancy book, I do give away the first chapter for free. So that's going into uh, a lot of the issues with the guidelines on nutrition for pregnancy and why I think we can do better. Uh, so that's free on the site. There's also a bunch of other freebies on the freebies page if people want to check them out, including like a free video series on gestational diabetes. So go over there for info on that. And then uh, social media wise, I am most active these days, although not extremely active. <laughs> Define active. <laughs> <laughs> of the potential platforms. Yes. Most likely to find me on Instagram, even if I'm not posting like 
very regularly. I'll just yeah. put it at that. <laughs> no, and my handle there. on Instagram is the same as my website. So it's L-I-L-Y-N-I-C-H-O-L-S-R-D-N. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lillian. Of course, if you didn't grab that, um, that URL, you can also contact me at media at birthcircle.com and I'll put you in touch with all of Lily's resources. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Really, really fascinating. Thank you for having me. Great questions. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.